If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Esther as we continue um, this summer in this series that uh, we've entitled Courageous. Um, we've been looking at characters from God's Word um, and their, the story of their lives, and hopefully some of you have learned a little bit about courage uh, from this summer series. I'm so glad that uh, Todd Cooper and Jared were uh, able to speak in the month of June, Todd twice and Jared once, uh, just to give me a, a little time off. And uh, man, they did a great job. I listened to uh, both of uh, all three of those messages and they did an incredible job. And so I just want to thank Todd Cooper, our youth pastor. I don't know where he is, but thanks, buddy, for stepping in the gap for me and uh, Jared as well. And uh, they did a great job. But I don't know if you've noticed, ladies, so far the characters have all been men, haven't they? Huh? Yeah, it's not right, is it? <laughs> so we're going to switch gears over the next three weeks and, and focus on women. And so today's, the, the woman that we're going to be focused on today is a lady in the Old Testament, woman in the Old Testament by the name of Esther. And I, I love Esther's story, and I think you will learn a lot about courage from the life of this an amazing person. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we had some time off, uh, Cynthia and I, and so uh, we did some traveling, and uh, she I took a week, uh, well, we took a week as a family, and then I, I took a week and, and did, some, did some things, uh, visited with some old friends and pastor friends and that kind of thing, really got encouraged and recharged, and, and then Cynthia did the same thing, and, and we had a really nice time. But the week that she was gone, well, the week I was gone too, she was at home, um, but the week that she was gone, I was at home, and I had to play Mr. Mom. And which is great because I love that. And it was a great time with the kids where I was doing a bunch of stuff around the house and doing some advanced uh, message preparation from home. And it was a great time. Um, but <clears throat> I had to continue the amazing, amazingly organized schedule that my wife keeps for our kids during the summer. Any of you guys ever like had to do that, men, dads, right? Okay, so here's how it goes um, with my wife because she's incredibly organized, all right? Like, when you arrive at a place, you arrive on time or before time, all right? And everything leading up to that point is like leading up to that point, right? For me, it's like I wake up, we have coffee, have my devotions, encourage the kids to have devotions. Then we talk for a while, and then I go, oh my goodness, we have to leave, because you got to get to ballet, Sydney. And so it's this mad dash, okay? And so that happened... Um, probably on more than one occasion that week, but um, one day it happened, and um, the kids were in the car, Sydney was ready for ballet, like Sean had to go somewhere else later, I was running to take some stuff back to um, Lowe's, because I spent way too much money there, and so anyway, so um, I was all ready, I had everything in the car, the kids were in the car, everything was ready to go, and I'm walking around, I'm like, guys, I can't find my keys, help me find my keys, where are my keys, where are my keys, you know, look under the couch, look under the chair, did the dog take them, did the dog eat them, um, and so it was this mad rush around the house looking for my keys that took five minutes, and when you're late, five minutes is like an eternity, isn't it, and so I'm just walking through, like, get my keys, come on, help me find my keys, where'd you guys put my keys, blaming everybody except for me, and, and Sean looks at me, and he goes, hey, dad, they're in your hand, any of you ever had that happen before? Raise your hand if that happened. I need a little, okay, awesome. There's a support group tonight at seven o'clock and I'll be there and we'll all be late. Okay, so anyway, um, and poor Cynthia, she thought she married someone who was really organized because in college I really was and then I got a job in sales and that ruined it for me. So anyway, uh, it was like a bait and switch for her. You know, Sometimes when it comes 
to being courageous. I think we spend our lives um, looking around for our keys, looking around for courage, looking for a new opportunity because of a situation that we may be fearful or we may not like or might be unpleasant. We may spend so much of our lives trying to figure out what God's purpose is for us, and I, I, I really applaud that, and I think in, it's a great idea to do that. Like, don't misunderstand me. But we, we kind of agonize often over our current circumstances and think, man, I, can, I could be used in such a better way if I just had a different career. Or I could be used in such a better way, like I, I would be fulfilled and used and like God would do amazing things if I just had a different spouse. Or man, I, I could be used by God and, and like exemplify what courage is um, if I went to a different school or had different friends or worked for a different company or I don't know what your situation is, lived in a different location. Like, we are so obsessed and consumed as a society, and I know this because I've been there before at times in my life, where we are looking around and it seems like the grass is always greener on the other side when it comes to us being used by God and finding our purpose in life. And we agonize and we spend time and we belabor this whole idea when in reality, what God may be doing with you and with me is he may be using us right where we already are in the circumstances that we already find ourselves in. And so for some of you today, you're going to hear this amazing story about this incredible woman. And you're going to go, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but... If just this changed, if this, this just changed, if the circumstances were different, then I could. If I lived in a different home, then I could. If I lived in a different location, then I, should, you know, I could do this. And I want to tell you today that Esther's story absolutely exemplifies finding where God has you right now in whatever circumstance you find yourself in right now and being brave and courageous for him little background on this story. This is during a period of time when um, the Jewish people find themselves once again in exile. Um, even though Esther is kind of located right in the middle of the Old Testament, um, uh, in Nehemiah in that, uh, in that area, or excuse me, Job, and then Psalms and Proverbs, um, it's in with the history books. But actually, it's interesting because what happens um, in this story, what we're going to hear about today, and what you're going to read about today, actually happens towards the end of the Old Testament. About 450, roughly, years before Jesus uh, came to this earth, and, and the Jewish people had been pulled out of Jerusalem. Um, they are really living in captivity, essentially, uh, under the Persians uh, of that day. And they're, they're uh, literally thousands of miles away from their home. 
And, and the temple in Jerusalem has uh, become in disarray. Uh, Jerusalem was, was sacked and, and destroyed, essentially. And, and Nehemiah eventually goes in and, and does his work just a, about 100 years or so after this story you're going to hear today. And so the Jewish people are, are, are really in a position where they're oppressed and they're discouraged, and they, know, they don't know what's going on, and they are living in exile. And there's a king in Persia, and his name is King Ahasuerus. Isn't that a great name for a king? Ahasuerus. That's an awesome name for a king. Now, some of you, you're going to read this story, and you're going to, you're going to read it, and it's going to say Xerxes. Depending on the translation that you have, it's going to either use Ahasuerus or it's going to use Xerxes, okay? Either one, but they're both the same person. So I want to clear up that confusion at the beginning. Ahasuerus was actually, his, uh, was actually his Hebrew name, and Xerxes was his Greek or Persian name. And so this king is the king over the land. And, and he is a, a king that you're going to hear a little bit more about, but he has, like all kings do, uh, he has officials that are important in an important position um, to help him with his kingdom. And one official that he has is a gentleman by the name of Mordecai. And Mordecai is in an important position in the king's uh, officials, among the king's officials. And one of his jobs, one of his roles, is to stand at the gate of the city and look out for people that are coming in. He, he was a bit like a security guard, if you will, making sure that people that would want to harm the king didn't get to the king. And so this man by the name of Mordecai is an important, in that day and age, that was incredibly important. And people that were like security guards at the gate of the city were incredibly honored and important people. And so you have this man by the name of Mordecai, and his job is to look out for potential danger. And Mordecai um, actually uh, adopted his niece, whose name was Esther, who the book is written about. And so Esther was born, her parents died early in her life, and her uncle, Uncle Mordecai, adopted her and, and lived with her. But he was, he was a godly man. He was close to the heart of God. He was a good man, and he took care of Esther. And really, Esther viewed Mordecai more like a father figure than she did even an uncle. And so those are kind of the three key people that we've talked about so far. But there's one more in this story that kind of makes the story really interesting. And it actually allows the story to be used to talk about courage. And that's this man by the name of Haman. And Haman is entered into the story really in the third chapter. And we see this man by the name of Haman who comes into this story and he is also an official in the king's court, and he's young, and he's got a lot of upward mobility. And he does some things that puts him in a position of great power, even over Mordecai, even more so than Mordecai. He finds himself essentially what would amount to the second most powerful man in Persia. And so those are our four characters. I've put, asked our team to put them on the screen so you can take a look at these four characters because this story plays out like a movie or a book, which it is, by the way, uh, a book. Uh, and it plays out like that. It kind of reads like that. And we're going to tell it like that. So you have the benevolent king, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, um, and you'll see why he's benevolent in a little bit. Um, and then you have the brave queen, Esther, and the godly uncle or father, Mordecai. And then you have the evil villain, Haman. And I'm telling you, that those are the roles because those roles really aren't important to the bottom line of the story. It's the story itself that is important when it comes to courage. So here's what happens. This king, Ahasuerus, decides that he's going to throw a party one day. 
And he throws a party, and this party lasts for 180 days. That is some party, isn't it? And he has this party, and he does everything that kings would do in a party, if you know what I'm talking about, okay? So this guy is out of control, and one day he asks his queen, Vashti, to come before him and all of his subjects and dance in front of them. And you know what she said? She said, absolutely, king. No, she didn't say absolutely. She said, no way am I going to do that. Are you kidding me, king? I'm not going to do that. And you know what he did? He banished her from his kingdom. He threw her out. She's done. And he influenced any power she had and any ability that she had to change culture was gone because this king was furious in that moment that she wouldn't do what he told her to do. And so he got with his wise men, he got with the people in his court that were closest to him, and he said, hey, what do you think I should do? And they said, I think, we think that you should bring in front of you all the young women of the land and choose one to be the new queen. And he brings all the women of the land, and he chooses Esther to be the new queen. Now, so far, this king's not very benevolent, is he? You'll find out later why he is. But he chooses Esther, so we find this orphaned young woman who also is Jewish, but the king doesn't know that, and she finds herself in the position of becoming the new queen. It was interesting because there's a, a passage, I think it's in chapter one or two, where Mordecai, the, the uncle, father figure in her life, um, sits her down and says, hey, Esther, listen, probably a good idea for you not to tell the king that you're Jewish. We may need to save that information for some other time. So, uh, like, you know, we, we want to do this right and we want to plan this right. So don't tell the king that you're Jewish. Well, in the meantime, we've got this man by the name of Haman that's kind of risen up in the ranks of the king's court and the officials. And um, he, um, he is walking through the city one day. And when, when he would walk through the city, because he was a second command, the people of the city of Susa, they would bow down and worship him, not just the king, but they would also worship this man by the name of Haman. And Haman is going over to the city gate one day, and he passes Mordecai, who's a believer in the one true God. And you know what Mordecai does? Nothing. And that enrages Haman. It makes him so incredibly man, mad that this man by the name of Mordecai, who's essentially like a co-worker with him, like a, you know, uh, someone who's kind of on the same team, won't bow down to him. And he becomes enraged towards Mordecai. To add insult to injury, there was a story that happened earlier where Mordecai, in his job of overseeing the city and protecting the king, hears about a plot with two men to go and murder the king. And he tells Esther, and he says, warn the king, he's about ready to be killed. And because Mordecai did that, and because Esther passed the information along to the king, it ended up that the king was saved. And so now, you add insult to Haman's in injury, in that he doesn't like this guy because he won't bow down to him, but now he really doesn't like this man named Mordecai because the king is endeared now to Mordecai. And he loves Mordecai because Mordecai saved his own life. And so Haman goes to the king. And in the midst of, I'm kind of guessing this is how it went, in the midst of like the chaos that I'm sure a king has on a daily basis, he asks him, can I go, I don't want to kill Haman, but I want to go murder all the Jews in the land. 
And so he gets this king to sign off on, on papers that orders on a certain day at a certain time in a certain month that all the Jews in Persia would be killed. I, I kind of get the feeling that like the king wasn't paying attention to what he was asking because you'll see later that he really does kind of become a good king. Uh, this is kind of like it's kind of like the similar to like my kids that are they come up to me when I'm in the middle of like working on something really intensely and they're like, hey dad, can I buy something and it costs like $50? And I'm like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Because I'm not really listening to them and they know when that happens, right? You've experienced that. Maybe some of you have done that, right? And he just says, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to go throughout the land. We're going to kill all the Jews. And so you see that this kind of culture, this period of time for the Jewish people that were in exile in Persia goes from bad to much worse, doesn't it? Take a look at Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old men, women and children, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. I mean, what this was is, is genocide. This was a threat of genocide upon the Jewish people from this king's administration. This is not looking good. A whole race of people are about ready to be wiped out. What happened in Egypt hundreds of years, thousands of years earlier wouldn't even compare because there were so many more at this point in time. And so Mordecai, he hears about this, he reads the papers, and he decides that something must be done to stop this genocide from happening. And so he sends a copy of the decree in chapter 4. Let's take a look at this to Esther to get her involvement to try to overthrow this plot. Take a look at verses 8 through 17 of chapter 4. Mordecai also gave him uh, this um, uh, Hathach, uh, who's a servant. Hathach, uh, he gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, that's the capital city in Persia, for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, the queen, the new queen, and explain to her and could command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and he told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and to say this, all the king's servants and all the uh, king's provinces know that if any man or any woman, this is so important, don't miss this, goes to the king and goes to the inner court of the king without being called, there is one law that applies. And what is that one law, she says? To be put to what? Death. Okay, Uncle Mordecai, thanks for thinking of me. <laughs> I appreciate the fact that you have so much confidence in me, but if I go there, I'm going to be put to death. Hang on. Except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called, she says, for 30 days to come to the king. So she's essentially selling, telling Uncle Mordecai that it is probable that if I do this, I'll be killed. Take a look at his response. Mordecai, they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that 
in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. He recognizes what's going on. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from somewhere else. He's essentially saying to Esther that like salvation is going to come from something in this instance. And whether you get killed going into his court or whether like the salvation arises from someone else, you're still going to be killed. He says that it will arise from Jews from another place, but you and your father's house, you'll, be, you'll perish. And who knows whether you have come, you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. And it's those little words that define Esther's story. And it's those little words that may define some of your stories if you would just allow God to do an amazing work in your life right where you are with his power on your side for such a time as this. Take a look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, uh, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold on my, uh, fast on my behalf and don't eat or drink for three days, day or night, night or day. And I and my young woman will also fast with you. Um, then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and look what she says. If I perish, I perish. This young orphan girl who all of a sudden finds herself in the situation that she is the queen says, I will do the right thing in the right moment, even if it costs me my life. Even if the price that I have to pay is my life. I will do this thing. Take a look at Esther 5, 2 and 3. And when the king saw, she goes in to see him. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Esther, I love you so much, I will give you even half of my kingdom if you ask for it. It's a huge deal. So clearly, Esther has the favor of the king. And I don't know about you, but I'm waiting for her to just like say it, right? Just tell him, don't do this. Don't allow this to happen, king. Take a look at verse six. It says, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be filled. And Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king to grant me my wish and my, fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Okay, at this point in time, if I'm really honest with you, I'm kind of like, okay, the king has been drinking wine. <laughs> He's been known as a party guy. He's been probably drinking too much wine. Now's your time, Esther, to ask him the question, right? I mean, am I the only one that thinks that? Like, now's your time. And she asked for another party. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it, except that Esther was a woman of God, and I don't think she wanted to take advantage of this king in his current state. There's a fine line between being manipulative and doing the right thing. And Esther was humble, and she did the right thing. 
So, so here's the picture of what's going on. Um, this angry guy, Haman, is out for Mordecai. He's out for the Jews. And, and Queen Esther is wanting to protect the Jews. And she goes to the king, and she has favor with the king. And she approaches him humbly, and, and he, he, he listens to her. And she asks for this private party for the king and for Haman and for her. And so she goes to Haman, and she says, hey, I want you to come to this private party with you and me and, and, and the king. And Haman's like, Awesome. And he hears that Mordecai is going to be there as well, these four characters in our story. And so Haman is so excited, he goes home and he tells his wife, I've been asked by the queen to be at this private party with the king. And not only that, my greatest enemy, Mordecai, is going to be there. This is awesome. And in response, he builds gallows to hang Mordecai. Because he's sure that when he tells the king that this man didn't bow down to him, Surely the king will want to hang him. And then in chapter 6, he finds out some bad news. He finds out that the reason that Mordecai was invited to this private party is because the king wants to honor Mordecai for protecting him. And all of a sudden, Haman's like, oh, this may not be good. This may not be good. And he goes back to his wife and friends um, and they tell him to be careful. Look at verse 13 of chapter 6. And Haman told his, his wife and his friends everything that had happened. And the wise men and his wife say to him, Mordecai, if, if, if Mordecai uh, before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely you will fall before him. And while they were yet talking to him, I'm sure Haman is like, oh boy, I think they're right. I'm in trouble. Now I understand why they've invited me to this. But while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let me tell you, this is a private party gone wrong, isn't it? There are going to be some fireworks at this party. There they all are, Haman, the king, Esther, and Mordecai, sitting around the table. And finally, he asks, and finally, she answers. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And the king is probably like, wait a minute, you're Jewish? Whoa. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. But then the king said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And she's like, He's right next to you, bud. He's right there. That's your guy. Look at verse 6. And Esther said to him, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified. You bet he was terrified before the, before the king and the queen. And so resolution comes to the Jewish people in this instance. Because an orphan girl decided that she would follow the wise counsel of her uncle and father. And do the right thing in the right moment. I'm going to add this part because it's just kind of funny in the story. Look at verse 10 of chapter 7. And the king said, hang him, Haman. Hang him on the same gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king was gone. 
Take a look at how the story ends in chapter 8, and this is where we'll end. Esther rose, she stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by all of these people, including Haman, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces, because I can't bear the calamity that will come on my people. And the king grants her request. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 7. Then the king said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So they saved the day, Esther and Mordecai. And I believe that this amazing story that I just love, and it's so dramatic, and it's so fun, and, and there's like a little bit of funny in there when like Haman gets hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai. I think what it highlights for us is that courage in the moment depends on our willingness to do what God asks, whatever the cost. Courage in the moment depends on our willingness to do what God asks, whatever the cost may be. And I think there are two parts to that that you and I have to understand. And the first is the in the moment. You see, some of you are holding your keys and you don't even know it. Some of you are in the exact job in the exact family, in the exact marriage, in the exact school, students, in the exact workplace, career that God has for you. But you're looking back at so much regret in the past, and you're looking forward to that time when God's going to put you in the sweet spot, that perfect place. And listen, I, I get that. I understand that. But that does not negate the fact that God can use you right where you are are for him. The keys are in your hand. You're looking everywhere else and they're already there. They're already there. And the second part of that is whatever the cost. You know, Esther was willing to give her life, wasn't she? And in our culture, praise God, when we stand up for him, it's not often that we Christ followers lose our lives. There are other places in this world where that does happen. But maybe you need to stand up right where you are and be ready to give up a little bit of yourself. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's just being willing to be embarrassed because you have to face a family situation that's gone on for far too long and you've done nothing about it up to this point. Or maybe there's something going on in your workplace that you know is incredibly unethical. And it's time for you to be courageous and make change happen. We, we so want to look around and think that we're not the person to do that. And to think that we're not in the position to do that. And that we don't have the ability to do that. And you know what? We're not. We're not. And we aren't. But he's sovereign. And he's on our side if you're a Christ follower. If you're here today and you, you're a Christian, you're already a Christ follower, you, 
you already have God on your side. The keys are in your hand. My challenge to you today is to look around in your current circumstance, where you are now, where you are today, and find that area that you need to stand and be courageous and be brave like Esther was. You have no idea what God may do with you in your moment now for such a time as this. Man, stop looking around. Yeah, look for that next thing for your family and your life. But man, look for what God may be doing right where you are right now. And be willing to pay the price to stand up for him or for the good of your family or for the good of good. God, I just pray that you would be with those of us who are here today. And um, God, maybe we've come in discouraged about our current circumstances, um, our situation, or what we're faced with. And God, I pray that you would be the God of hope and healing and that you would provide peace in those situations, God. And God, I pray that you would provide relief where it needs to be relieved. But God, I pray for those who are in here today and um, they're just looking around for the next thing when you've got them in the right thing right now. You just want them to, to make a stand. You want them to do the right thing. You want them to take the leadership mantle in this moment right now God we have you on our side there is nothing that you can't do and Father God I pray for a bunch of people in this church that will be brave and courageous when they're faced with situations that they know that you want them involved with God that you would give them the power that you would give them the courage and the character to stand up in the moment and do what it takes, whatever the cost. God, I pray that you would give us that in Jesus' name. Amen.